The motorcycle didn't come first on this adventure. This was about doing something different. It Actually, it was really about avoiding a predictable flight, about changing that predictable flight into some kind of adventure. A true adventure in which the participants were arguably unprepared, likely didn't have the background or necessary skills for an adventure of that magnitude, but they weren't trying to fool anyone either into thinking that they were any of those things. Instead of complaining each time one of the Urals broke down or, or eventually even trying to swap off the Urals for a different kind of bike, they just began counting the breakdowns, 972 breakdowns, all of which they managed to fix one way or another along the way. They got stuck. They dragged the bikes through raging rivers. They tore engines down, welded broken parts countless times, ran out of fuel, ran out of food, began starving. The type of adventure that probably nobody would choose to repeat, but in the same breath, no one would choose to forget. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manikin. Ted Simon. Austin Vince. Simon Pavey. Brian Field. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Elspeth Bayer. Jim Jansen, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. There's a huge adventure motorcycle event happening this year called the Get On ADV Fest, brought to you by Revzilla. It takes place in the Black Hills of South Dakota this July 15 to 18. Get your tickets at revzilla.com slash ADV hyphen fest. Revzilla.com slash ADV hyphen fest. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Googletech filters. CyclePump.com. Well, this adventure was not measured by miles, but by breakdowns. They rode Ural motorcycles from Germany to New York by way of Russia and the Road of Bones. And although the breakdowns were aggravating, inconvenient, and, and used far too much of their time, those very same unreliable Ural sidecars were the thread that bound this entire adventure together, gave it personality. And these riders, well, they liked it. Hmm. Okay. So my name is Elfi. I'm from Cyprus, but have been living in Germany the last four years. And I'm an artist. Okay. My name is Kalpo. I'm from Estonia. And uh, I'm also an artist. Capo, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Hi. Before you did this journey that we're about to talk about, were motorcycles a part of your lives at all? Actually, no. Uh, also, the, the, the journey started from Germany, 2014, and I joined the journey six months later. So uh, in uh, Georgia, it's a it's a country. Georgia. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, uh, by by this time I didn't have a a uh, driving license, so I I flew to Germany and the uh, group was there, and actually I made my driving licenses there, like basically while the the journey was already going on. So you went back to get your your license. Isn't the the license graduated there? Don't you only get a partial license at first? Not if you have a car driving license already, oh. then oh. it's fine. And uh, the thing was that in uh, Georgia, uh, you, you don't uh, actually need to go to the driving school if you have a car license. So you just do, do uh, like a short test, which took me 30 seconds. And uh, there was my license. Oh, that's it. <laughs> okay, I see. I thought it was going to be a big drawn out deal. I mean, you know, they can be pretty strict in some countries for, for licenses, in particular motorcycle licenses. But but let me jump back to you, Effie. Um, you were there from the start then? Uh, yes. I was not actually planning to be there, let's say. Um, so I met Johannes and Elizabeth in Rotterdam while I was doing an artist residency. And they were also working for a sculptor there. And this was at the point where they were planning the trip. And yeah, long story short, there was a lot of excitement about the whole thing and the bikes and organizing. And somehow I got involved in the organizational part. Well, let's talk about that planning. Yeah. What, what was the idea? Who comes up with the idea? What, what is the original plan? And what's the purpose of the whole adventure? Well. The original idea came from Johannes, who actually wanted to cross the Bering Strait. He wanted to, he wanted to go to Canada, actually, to visit his sister. This was his idea. So, uh, like, That's sorry, sorry, but th- that sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? I mean, this is a huge adventure to go to Canada to visit his sister. This is like a, a, like a sort of a convoluted route. Yeah. The great thing is that by the time we actually reached Canada, his sister had moved back to Germany. So we were <laughs> really slow. Um, but yeah, I mean, his main idea was that, okay, we, we I don't want to take a plane because planes are kind of boring, I guess, mm-hmm. and really expensive. And I think you don't really get to know what's in between, like traveling from Europe to Canada. You don't know all the parts that come in between there, you don't get to experience all that. So yeah, he thought we should go the slowest way possible and the longest way possible. And yeah, of course, not going by plane meant we should somehow figure out a way to cross those 70, 80 kilometers of water that separate Russia from Alaska. So the idea was yeah, to cross the Bering Strait. So motorcycles, are some people in the group motorcyclists? Is that why the idea of riding bikes came into it? Mm. Elizabeth and Johannes, they had a bit of experience with mopeds. They did a trip to, or they tried to reach in India uh, a few years back. They had these um, Simpson mopeds, these East German. Yeah, they're, they are quite um, um, common here in Germany. Mm-hmm. Like this, like I think they're 125 uh, cubic. Like little mopeds. So that's it. That that was their experience was just was just the mopeds. But you guys chose to ride Urals with sidecars. I mean, I'm just wondering where this whole thing comes from because as we're gonna find mm. out as we go along here, this is a, a pretty bizarre adventure. Now we have a friend in Germany who uh, is called Tom, Tom Vanendert. 
and he is the Ural Pope here. And uh, he actually told us that, okay, take these Russian bikes. You will have a long trip through Russia and you will find spare parts everywhere for these bikes. And all the ex-Soviet regions, also like Mongolia and Kazakhstan, you will be able to fix these things along the way. So we didn't want to take like, a, I don't know, BMW or KTM or machines that you probably, if you have a problem with them, then it gets really expensive to either you ship the bike back to get it fixed, or you, if you have to wait somewhere for months to find a part and also how much it costs to uh, change things or to exchange these parts. So, yeah, I mean, we didn't have a lot of money either. And we thought, okay, we will learn how to fix these bikes. Okay, so um, the, the, the Urals and the sidecar. So, so when I gather no one really had firsthand experience or, or any sort of real experience understanding with the Urals. Was there an understanding before you guys set out uh, as far as the reliability goes in the Urals? <laughs> I think we, uh, we knew that there will be some problems, but we didn't know that there will be so so uh much of them actually this was like yeah i think finally it was like uh, uh, it was like a daily daily fixing it it uh, started in the morning and uh, sometimes we had like five or six uh, uh, different uh, breakdowns in uh, in one day so yeah this was a surprise uh, at some point we started classifying our breakdowns what actually constitutes a breakdown so yeah like a flat tire was nothing uh, if you compare it to a crankshaft or i don't know generator Broken electricity frames or, problems yeah, so. yeah. Well, let's talk about the units first before you went as far as repairing these units so these are ural 650s with sidecars can you talk about that and the preparation that went into that uh, basically, uh, we bought this, uh, like this, the six, uh, six, uh, the, the six fifties, but you know, basically this, um, these bikes were made in the eighties uh, and the early, um, nineties. Uh, so they were made in the Soviet Russia kind of, mm -hmm. and, uh, we got them here from, um, from Germany used. So basically I think they were in pretty good shape for their age. But still, like the, I think the, the the general quality of these bikes is is maybe not the best, so they are known to um, uh, break down. And uh, as we saw now later on the journey, that the uh, Russians they had them in like somewhere in the yard or like the old uh, bike. But I guess the people got uh, tired actually because it wasn't possible to fix them. Finally, it was like this constant breakdown. So this is leaving with four used Urals yeah, and sidecars. And how many people left to begin with? We were more people in the start. Uh, so it was me, Elizabeth, Anne, Johannes, uh, and two more people that joined us until the Republic of Georgia. And then they decided that, okay, this kind of trip is not for them. They decided to come back to Germany. And yes, then it was uh, three girls and Johannes. And that's when we decided, okay, we will have difficulties coming up. Maybe we should get a bit more muscle on our side. <laughs> so it's still four bikes though? You, you still had the four bikes with you? 
Yeah, no, we had the three bikes, the other two left with their bikes. Oh, and see. then we had to organize another bike for Copo. From Germany. Right. And this is where Copo comes in. And how did you find out? Like, how did you come into it late? Why weren't you there at the start? Uh, no, actually, I was finishing my um, art studies. And like, I was busy actually with art. So I, I was doing an also like artist residency. And then I think this was the point when other two people left. And then I got a call. Like I, I know that I uh, knew them from, from my, uh, I knew them from my exchange here. So, and like we, we were friends and then they were looking for somebody to like a guy to, uh, join in. And then they gave me a call to, uh, through Skype and said like, Hey, Gauper, do you have time? Uh, for the next uh, two years to come and uh, the drive with us to New York. And I was uh, thinking for a couple of days and said, yeah, sure. It sounds like a really cool, really cool trip. So sure. And then I think like three weeks later, I was in Georgia and uh, started making some uh, lessons with this uh, to make the licenses. Wow, two years. That's a big commitment. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I, I just had uh, finished my studies, so I, I didn't really have a strict plan for the end, uh, years to uh, come yet. And yeah, I was, uh, it was uh, um, good. Uh, it was a good uh, time for me, actually. So two years, long time. Um, where are you headed to first and what's the idea? So when we started from Germany, um we went all the way through Europe, uh, through Austria, then, right? It, it was let Austria, me, let me open Hungary, <laughs> then Serbia, Greece, Turkey, Georgia. Then we went to Russia, Kazakhstan, Mongolia, and uh, Russia again. And from there, we went to Canada and finally USA. Okay, and... At one point, you started counting the breakdowns. I was kind of curious about this. Now, was that an idea before you left, <laughs> thinking, okay, well, let's, let's count all of our breakdowns and document all this, or did it just become apparent after day after day of having problems that maybe you should document it? Uh, the idea of documenting the breakdowns came while we were in Georgia. We had an exhibition running at that time uh, here in Germany. Uh, and we drafted an assessment form, a breakdown assessment form, where we recorded what type of breakdown it was, the number of breakdown, of course, uh, what had happened, what were the factors that affected the fixing process, how long it took to fix the problem, and the kind of um, visual documentation. And we would send these assessment forms back to the exhibition space and the people at the exhibition space were putting these forms up and forming the route for where we were located at the time. Oh, that's really cool. So that was live or semi-live, I guess, as you're doing it. It's almost old school rather than doing it with a website. Yeah, it was pretty old school. I mean, at some point it, it was done on the phone. I, like I had this form on the phone and I was filling it in and sending it. But then uh, we forgot the phone on the back of Johannes's bike one day. And by the time we went back to find it, it fell off the bike. A tractor had driven over it. So we had no phone anymore. And then it became, yeah, 
more old school paper. Is that your satellite phone you're talking about? Uh, satellite phone we didn't have by then. We had oh. three phones with us. Mm-hmm. One I was sharing with Johannes and Elizabeth and Anna had a phone each. And Kopo lost his phone somewhere in Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan, yeah. This was uh, one month uh, uh, after I started my journey. So I was t- totally like cut off from the world <laughs> in this way, in this sense. Talk about the, when, when the trouble started happening. In other words, as far as the bikes go, one of those first breakdowns, those big breakdowns where you really started to think, wow, we're, this is, this is going to be a problem. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I think the whole trip through Europe was a lot about learning to drive the bikes and fix the bikes. But actually, I think it was also to realize because no one really has experience with driving that we are causing a lot of the problems ourselves. Oh, like what kind of so, things? I think especially with switching the gears, this must have caused no, a but, lot of but I, um, I know that in Austria, they had their first, uh, uh, they had their first crankshaft problem. Yeah. So this mm. was already like um, 500 kilo, um, kilometers after leaving uh, the Halle. This is the city, city that, that, that we started from, or that they uh, started from in Germany. And like, yeah, let's say five, uh, um, 700 uh, kilo, kilo, kilometers later in Austria, the first crankshaft was actually broken. What do you mean you say broken? What happened? If he, you were there. <laughs> I have no idea. I was not really paying attention as a no driver, non-driver. I can't really say that I know or I knew by this point. But basically this, uh, uh, I don't know that because we, I, I think, in, uh, in total, uh, throughout the journey, we had like maybe five or six, uh, crankshafts broken and wow. mostly they just like happen. It's just like, I, 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 I think the quality of this, uh, part is just not good. Actually, this, this was the reason, but also like another reason was that we had way too much stuff in the bike. So they were like over, overweight by like maybe a hundred or 200 kilos even. So I, I, I think there was like just uh, way too much stress on this, uh, uh, crankshaft. What kind of things were in the sidecar to add up all this weight? No, for, <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, for example, my sidecar was just for the spare parts. So, and, and I, and I think the maximum weight for, for this bike is like 550 kilos. And I think mine was like 700 or so. So talk about spare parts. What, what, what spare parts? Everything was in Everything, there. Everything, yeah. We had, we had like, uh, uh, I had this front, uh, front shocks. They were heavy and huge and huge. Then there were, I had, I think, two or three uh, tra- uh, transmissions in there. Cylinder heads, cylinder heads, yeah. Like actually, we we had parts for uh, for the whole bike with us. Transmissions and cylinder heads. It's funny because that, that's something that normally you won't take on a, on a journey. You just don't expect to have to do that. But you guys obviously understood that you're going to end up having to do these repairs. So when something big like, big like that crankshaft goes, uh, I'm assuming it didn't actually break, like it didn't actually crack in half, that the bearings are, are worn out of the crankshaft. What does it do for you as far as a breakdown? How do you handle it? No, but, uh, usually because we uh, uh, knew that this uh, fix will, will take us like uh, 12 hours or so. 
So we try to find like a place where we can say like a garage uh, or like a workshop. And then we would fix it uh, by our, by ourselves. And uh, I mean, this, this bike is quite easy to fix. It's just like really easy. I, I mean, the, the, it's, uh, it's, it's a copy from the German BMW R70 something. I don't know. 30 <laughs> exactly. or 30 maybe? Maybe. Yeah. 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 And, 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 and I think the point was that they made it for the, for the war. So also the point was that it's really simple and fast to uh, uh, fix it. And this is, yeah, this is how we kind of actually, and I mean, basically when we started, we didn't have so much knowledge about how to fix, but uh, in this sense, it bike was really cool because it was so simple. So it, it was the best way how to learn and like, you know, yeah. But we also, I mean, just to add back to the spare parts, we also didn't have knowledge of how we weren't really prepared with what kind of spare parts to take from the beginning. Like we started off with spark plugs and like gaskets or inlets for the carburetors. So it was also a kind of learning curve to take whatever spare parts we find along the way. Like we really started collecting this stuff, especially when we reached Russia, this was like spare parts heaven. And there we really started our, this like, I don't know, 300 kilo collection that ended up in Copa sidecar. You ended up having 972 breakdowns. Um, and you mentioned about, uh, you know, what constitutes a breakdown. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Usually one of the four bikes or the one person would stop. If it's someone in the back, then the others in front would realize, ah, someone is left behind. Maybe we should turn around. And usually Copo's sidecar was very useful at that point. So his sidecar would flip open. All the spare parts and tools, they start flying around on the street. And yeah, if 20 minutes pass, we and someone starts fixing, of course, and after 20 minutes, maybe we take out the phones or these breakdown forms or start writing in journals. If 40 minutes pass, then it's time to take out the, the gas cooker and make a coffee. And yeah, if we're still there three or four hours later, it's probably getting dark and it's time to set up the tarp. <laughs> I like that. That's really good. So 20 minutes, 40 minutes. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense especially if you're doing it all the time. Now, now, were some of the people on the expedition mechanics or have mechanical abilities? I'm still not a mechanic, for sure. No, no. So, None of us actually knew something. But yeah, this bike was for our school. So you learned as it broke down, you learned what it would take to fix it, and you keep it yeah, going. Exactly, yeah. And could you always do it? Uh, we did, actually, yeah. One way or another. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, maybe it caused bigger problems later on, but it took us a little bit further. Mm -hmm. But I mean, one of the really big things about the breakdowns also that I, we have to mention is that we received a lot of help from people also. So it was many times that we had set up camp on the side of the road and then someone passing by would see these, especially in Russia, they would see these Urals and they would just start laughing. They would just start laughing at us that we came from Germany with like this piece of scrap metal, basically. 
and we yeah we would end up in their garages or in their backyards and they of course had a lot of knowledge and a lot of tools and a lot of parts lying around so we ended up in yeah these learning situations or a lot of people taught us their little homemade tricks yeah yeah so a lot of these people you met along the way helped you out. Did, did you think that was going to be this? Was that something that you, you could see coming with the trip? Did you think you were going to meet so many people? No, never. I, I, I had no idea what to expect, actually, of this trip. It's amazing how, how much help people wanted to offer and also uh, how hard it is to... I mean, of course, it's really nice that people offer their help, but it's also hard to accept that you're always the one that has a problem. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, we were always the problem, but it was always worth it Yeah, to see people laughing at us. Actually, we were like a joke on wheels, basically. Hey, want to take a quick break here to tell you about a couple of things, but stay with us because we get a lot more coming up. So if you're not riding with the Atlas Throttle Lock, then you're you're definitely missing out. This was invented by Heidi and David Winters from necessity while they were traveling around the world in their KTM. The Atlas Throttle Lock is a thing of beauty, but it works, more importantly, it works like clockwork. Uh, First, it mounts in your handlebars in minutes, and then you're looking at two buttons, one for engage, one for disengage, smooth and firm, and you know right away, this is a high-quality machined part. But when you're riding, that's where the where the where the unit really shines. I use mine all the time. And even on shorter trips, I used to like I've I've had throttle locks for years. I used to use them on longer stretches, but this one's so easy to use. It works so well that I use it all the time, even on short runs. You can adjust the throttle without disengaging. There's one button for engage, one button for disengage, firm, solid buttons, just like you would expect uh, on, on a quality item. AtlasThrottleLock.com is their website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there. You heard them on Adventure Rider Radio. AtlasThrottleLock.com. Revzilla is presenting the new Get On ADV Fest this July 15 to 18 in the Black Hills of South Dakota. This is set to be a huge event. Now, you could ride your adventure motorcycle along routes that they've got, uh, trails. You can camp there. You can watch presentations. There's going to be so much going on. You'll... um. You'll be able to try out some of the top brands as well. BMW, Kawasaki, even Harley Davidson is going to be there with their new Pan America, all for you to try out. Just ride around there and, and check things out. BMW is going to be presenting the BMW Taste of GS Trophy, uh, where you get to ride the uh, the GS or sort of a challenge uh, GS Challenge course. And you get tips as well from pros from the BMW Performance Center. There's going to be a ton of vendors showcasing products, um, selling gear. They have certified mechanics there to install gear um, and upgrade your motorcycle. I mean, it sounds like there's just going to be tons. This should be a really great event. You can get your tickets. I'm going to tell you how in a second, but first I'm going to tell you where it is. The Get On ADV Fest is happening at the Buffalo Chip Campgrounds in Buffalo Chip. It's all happening July 15th, 18th, this year, 2021. So to get your tickets, go to this website. It's revzilla.com forward slash ADV hyphen fest. And by the way, the Revzilla crew is going to be there as well. They're going to be set up and you can get stuff from Revzilla. There's so much more I can't even go into here. Drop by the website, have a look. Revzilla.com forward slash ADV hyphen fest. And anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard about it here on Adventure Rider Radio. By the way, the link is also on our website. 
through uh, Mongolia. What, what was that like? You had some challenges there. There, I, I think this was the first time because this bike uh, eat eat like uh, eat quite a lot of petrol. So this was the point that there were some uh, some uh, cities that we knew that uh, we needed to get more petrol to get to the next city. Actually, because I I, I think this bike needs like. 10 to 12 uh, 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 liters per hundred case. And then like we all, each bike had like the uh, 20, uh, 20 liter uh, tank plus a, plus a, a um, plus a, a 20 liter can also. So basically this was that we, we, we had to check that we have uh, uh, plenty enough of uh, petrol with us. Now another the big thing that came up in Mongolia was communication. Like we really had to start using our hands and feet to communicate with people. It was really the furthest away from home that we had ever been, or that's the point where you realize, okay, yeah, there, there's nothing that reminds me of Europe anymore. And it was pretty cool. And basically the, uh, the roads were like uh, quite quite uh, uh, rough, and like I think if you have a you have a good bike, then it's uh, th- then it's fine and it's fun. But with these machines, it was more like yeah, like they started to fall apart actually. So we had like like the fenders were uh, breaking off, and like uh, the lamps actually uh, the headlights. Yes, the headlights. Yeah. We all had to tie them up with ribbons or whatever wire or whatever we could find. And yeah, but it, I remember once it was really funny because we di- we didn't actually think that we will also find so many spare things in Mongolia. And Kopo had her, basically his sidecar was essentially falling off. So when we made it to the next settlement looking for a sidecar, uh, this guy came up to us and he said, okay, behind this yard is one sidecar that you can take. This has been used for grilling and another sidecar that you can take. And this has been used to dry camel shit. So <laughs> take your pick. So the one was used as a barbecue sort of, and the other yeah. one was, was it was a cow flop thing. Yes. Wow. So of course, Copo took the one that was used for drying camel shit. Yeah, exactly. Because, because the other one was falling apart from yeah. the grilling. Right. Wow. And so that's what you bolted onto your bike and, and off you go again, once again, to patch together and on the road. Yeah, the, exactly. They are like a patchwork from all over the world. By now, these bikes, like they don't have most of the parts that they started off with. Yeah. Now they look a bit like a quilt work. You mentioned the headlights falling off. Is it the same problems with all the bikes? They were pretty much the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the the sidecar fenders, they probably almost split to half. And so, so we went like, but in Mongolia, it it was like this uh, basic service that each like little village had a welder. So we 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 also went from from welder to welder, and then we uh, 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 patched them up basically. How many different welders did you visit? Oh, I think the main people we met in Mongolia were welders. Yeah, probably. Mm. Maybe seven or eight or 10 even. Yeah, I guess. That's just in Mongolia. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. But because the roads were like really uh, bad there. So yeah, this this was like uh, 
uh, different from other countries, actually. Was there any point where you where you all decide or, or talk about at least saying this is ridiculous? The, these things are just too unreliable that it's making the trip too arduous and and the thought of, of taking a different bike or trading them in for something else? Yeah, sure. We were thinking about it. <laughs> but uh, somehow mm, this had also, uh, this was like sort of our uh, trademark or like, this, like, like, yeah, this, this, these bikes were our pain, but at the same time, they were also our, our love uh, in this sense. So right. they, these, these bikes uh, brought us uh, to meet, um, to meet people actually. So in this sense, no, we, we didn't really want to let them go. They, they almost became the point of the trip then. That, that, that's yeah, your, yeah. a bit of your personality, yeah. I guess. The, the exactly, bikes that you're, yeah. you're pushing through. It's, it's character. Right, right. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. Now, you, you got into to Russia. Now, I, I, have, I have a little trouble with the, the route here is because you were headed for the Bering Strait, but you didn't make it there in, in the first year. Can you talk about that route into Russia and how you deviated? Uh, after we left Mongolia, we uh, entered like the far east of Russia. And there we started going on the road of bones. And at some point, uh, we also had an accident at some point, which are a couple of accidents that set us back a bit. And then eventually at some point we reached this um, shortcut or what's called the old road of bones which we decided to take against people's warnings because we thought that we will save a lot of time and we might be able to make it to Bering Strait that year. Did you find out about this shortcut while you were there? Or is it something you knew about before you got there? We knew about it. I remember I heard about the long way around, like maybe a week or something before we took the shortcut. <laughs> wow. Uh, I think Elizabeth and Johannes had watched it a bit earlier in Georgia. Mm -hmm. And yeah, but we had a lot of people, truckers and other people on the road that told us that it's probably not a good idea mm -hmm. to go there because this road has also been closed down for the last 20 years. But a lot of people still go. I mean, it's a fun road, I think, if you have the right bike and you know that you will get out of there in time and you're well prepared. It might be okay. What did you find on the old road of bones? We found an endless loophole of swamps. Mm. Yes. And sort of small rivers, which we had to cross. Well, the road was there originally. What, what happened with the road? The road was totally falling apart. I remember the point where we realized that we really can't go back was after we drove, we went I think past the half of the old road and uh, there was this part where the, the road was caving in and this was fine to drive over because the sidecar was on the right, the sidecar was on the right where the road was caving in. So it was a bit lighter. You could drive that way, but to return, if the bike would be on the left side, then it would totally collapse. Mm -hmm. So after we crossed that part of this like yeah, caving road, then it was there was no choice of turning back anymore. Yeah. And they were basically, that's why it's called the old road, because uh, it um, this road uh, is shorter, but it goes through through the swamp. And uh, now they have built a new road, which which is like fi uh, 500 k's uh, longer. 
but it uh, it follows like the mountain uh, slope. So and basically, they, they this this uh, old road was so difficult to um, maintain that they uh, uh, chose to make the new one. Were, were the Urals two wheel drive or just single wheel drive? Single wheel, single wheel drive. Just, so, yeah, so they're not very good when you get into the rough stuff. Uh, <laughs> yeah, for and, and also the the, uh, the thing was that we had so much weight in there, and basically there, there was like this, like I don't know, maybe one uh, one and a half meter slopes, quite sharp. But with the sidecar, it was so hard to get the uh, uh, to uh, it was so hard to climb up there because the sidecar would pull your bike to the right. So like uh, quite uh, often we had to uh, pull them by rope or just like uh, uh, push them basically. Yeah. Can you talk about at one point just on this old road of bones um, at one point where you had to deal with getting stuck, getting through something and how you handled it? Um, I remember like the second bigger river crossing what we had and yeah, it was, I mean, the first river crossing was shallow enough that we could walk through the river and the distance was short enough. And it, it still took us like a whole day to pull the bikes through and go going through this cold water. But the bigger river crossing, we had to unpack all of the bikes, like everything needed to go out. Uh, we needed to empty the petrol canisters and the oil. And the from oil. The engine. And uh, figure out a kind of way to get them across because this was quite a strong current. How wide was this river? I think the the, the river was maybe like ten meters wide, but it was uh, mostly shallow. But there was this one like maybe um, two or three uh, meter wide sort of like um, deeper channel where the, the current was stronger. But it was not shallow enough to drive the bikes through. No, that's the, no, no. that was the point. So we had to figure out like a tying system with with ropes and pulleys to pull the bikes across the other side. So I think it was maybe especially scary for the first person who had to walk to the other side of the river to to tie the rope to put this system up. Maybe Kopo, you want to talk about this you were actually the person that had to go through the water yeah the uh, first uh, yeah basically our uh, system worked like this that one person had to cross the river with a rope so the rope was tight uh, tight um, tied to me and then i would tie this rope on the second uh, shore on a tree and uh, also we had like a, uh, and then uh, we uh, we used pulleys so basically, the the end of the rope was on the first shore. I don't know. It's maybe a little bit hard to uh, maybe ex- we should make like a this. drawing so we can put it. <laughs> You've got a yeah. block and tackle set up, so you're running the rope across the river. First, yeah, you have to walk exactly. across with it through all this current, yeah. and exactly, then use the yeah. pulley on the tree, and then you're you're going to actually yeah. drag the Ural each one of the Urals, four of them. You're going to drag yeah. them yeah. across. Yeah, un, like the, these vehicles are not running because you drain the oil out of them. Yes. yes, exactly. And then once we got all the bikes to the other side, we needed to reassemble everything and hope that they work again. <laughs> so what did you do what, what, when you say reassemble? How much work do you have to go through to get rid of the water and get your oil back in? Basically, we took off the cylinders and then we uh, pressed the kickstarter 
and the water came uh, came out. And I think we used a little bit fabric to get some more uh, drops out of there. And then that was it. Now the okay. air filter was also yeah, totally okay. full of water. Like yeah. water was actually dripping out from every hole of this bike. But no, actually it um, it wasn't so much work. We were like scared first that it's uh, hard to uh, um, start them again. But yeah, it, it was like, I don't know, it maybe took like two hours to make this one bike running. But yeah, in, in, uh, in our speed, how we were uh, making our pace, it was kind of fine. Why pull the cylinder heads off? Most times people pull the spark plugs out and kick it over, you know, until they get most of all the water out and then put the plugs back in, try and fire it up. Why take the cylinder head right off? Uh, because actually it's quite easy to do it. And uh, we, I, because we try to, to just take the, take the spark plug off, but this, the, this, the, the bike was still too wet. Uh, uh, sometimes it didn't want to start. So it, 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 mm. it, um, it was hard to actually uh, start them. Mm. And so it's uh, not like an electric the, start, you know, where you're cranking no, no. it over. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so, so they're to, all kickstart. Yes. They are old. Wow. So, is, so when you're saying they're simple to work on, they've got to be really dead simple if you're popping the cylinder heads off just to take the water out of the cylinders. Yeah, basically it's uh, four, five uh, nuts you have to uh, loosen. And then they're off. And the cylinder heads off. Wow. Yeah. So, um, so quite easy to do, but still that had to take a lot of time. I mean, the whole thing of, I mean, you, you crossing the river first and yeah. And, and Effie said that, you know, you being the first one, that must've been pretty scary. What was that like walking out there with the rope? Uh, what do you think about? No, first of all, it was quite cold. The, the water was like really like maybe, uh, five Celsius or, 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 or so. And I also had weight uh, on my back. So I had a big, uh, um, backpack with the pulleys and another piece of rope but yeah, i don't know i think uh in a, this moment when you're in this cold water and uh, fighting with the current you're just like really focused on on your goal just to get like, through there and mm -hmm. like yeah there's this uh great we have this moment on on camera actually where johannes asks copo is it okay and copo shakes his head saying no and then immediately he says yes. And it's just really confusing moment <laughs> emotionally because you're not sure if it's if it's okay or not, but it, but it has to be okay because this is the only thing that can work. And I mean, th this this stuff, un unloading the bikes and, and tying the pulley system to the other side and dragging them across took at least 24 hours. Wow. And apart from doing this, I mean, Anna was in charge of the medical kit. I think she was really worried that... If something happens now, we're in the middle of nowhere. We don't have a satellite phone. We have no cell reception. We're really far away from a hospital. So it was actually really, I mean, we were totally unprepared and quite dangerous also. And I think by that point, the main thing was that we had run out of food. We had our last meal that day, which was some alphabet soup mixed with flour. And I don't, what else was in there? I don't even remember anymore. Uh, actually. Uh, this was yeah. divided by uh, by the five of us. And we still had another, I don't know, 200 kilometers to go or another three days ahead of us. 150 maybe, yeah. But uh, you know, uh, sometimes we, we made only like five or 10 uh, kilo, uh, 
kilometers in a day if there was a river or, or and we didn't know how many of them are still coming. So it was like the, yeah, the, the, the uh, um, scariest part was that we uh, ran out of food. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing I no mean, one else while you're on the old road of bones? No, as like, as we went further into the road, all the tracks from other vehicles started disappearing. Uh, we did find the back, the, there was a backup vehicle from the long way around. We found this at some point, there was an abandoned truck uh, on the road and we, we tried to look for spare parts in there, but there were these huge wrench keys. It was maybe not the ideal spare parts for our bikes, but we were really excited to find this truck <laughs> on the way. But yeah, at some point, uh, like the, ve- the vehicle tracks were replaced with like, I don't know, bear marks. There was, there was nothing. There was no one. What was the morale like when you run out of food? This was actually pretty cool. <laughs> pretty cool in some ways. Uh, no one, I mean, you, if you're in a situation when you're kind of hungry in everyday life, you get kind of agitated and you lose concentration. But it wasn't really like that because we were all in a kind of survival mode. So we knew that the only option is to get out of here. And it makes no sense if we start bitching with each other. I mean, we're not going to make things any faster. So we pretty much stuck together at that point. And I think this was, I I was really happy actually to see that. Yeah. That's, that's uh, interesting for a group because it's, it's not often you get a group of people that no one starts to lose it in a situation like that. I mean, it, it was everyone pretty even tempered? No, no one found this overly stressful? Mm, no, we are all very different people. Some more sensitive than others in different subjects. But I think this was also part of our strength, maybe, that uh, some people were more, someone was more impatient, the other person was more patient. Uh, someone was more slow, the other person was faster. So I think we had a really good balance uh, and mixture in our group. So of course there were times or moments where each of us freaked out, but there was always someone to calm you down and be able to keep going. But, but I think uh, at this point we all stayed really focused. It, 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 it was really, I think we really functioned as a team, like each person kind of knew what they need to do. And yeah, it was really just to get to the, to get back to the, uh, civilization. Mm-hmm. And also you don't want to waste any energy in fighting or. Yes. Yeah. I mean, this is energy. Yeah, exactly. So although it's stressful, everyone understood the gravity of the situation and, um, just work towards getting yourselves out. Yeah. But you didn't get out really, not with the bikes you didn't at first. I mean, at one point you guys run out of fuel. Oh, yes, yes, exactly. Because we, uh, because the fuel um, ran out and then we had to leave two bikes behind and we uh, went further with other two until the last big river. And then we, from there on, we walked to the next village. And th- yeah, this was like maybe uh, five, ten kilo- um, kilometers, yeah, five uh, kilometers to, yeah. the, to the main road, actually. So yeah, basically we got, the, we got the totally uh, stuck there. Yeah, we saw this, like this silhouette of the city from far away. 
And we're like, okay, we're not going to to track the bikes anymore through the river. Like it's time to walk. Mm-hmm. And we were really hoping that, yeah, we will walk into the next settlement and we will find something to eat. Was there anyone in the group that um, was sort of against that? They didn't want to give up. They want to get all the bikes through as best you can. I think it wasn't an option anymore to like, everyone was so exhausted and so hungry. I think that it was really a plan to just take the petrol canisters, start walking, get something to eat, refill the petrol canisters and go back to do whatever needs to be done to get the bikes out of there. When we walked into the village, then we realized that this village has been abandoned for the last, I don't know, 10 years. Oh, so the silhouette you saw was a ghost town. It was a ghost town. Or a ghost yeah. city, not, I guess. Not even 10 years. I think that like the last um, piece of mail that we found in this place was from a couple of years back. And there was still clothes hanging on the lines, like wow. on the laundry lines. So it was, it was really like, okay, if we would have been a few years earlier, it would have been a happy moment. So you, oh, that had to be so depressing. And what did that feel like when you walk in and you realize that what you saw was basically a mirage? Yeah, it was the, one of the lowest moments in this journey, for sure. Like everybody was so hungry and like. But still, we, we were not, we, we, we decided that we will keep walking until we actually find food. There had to be someone around. There had to be another settlement close by or there had to be some because people go hunting or fishing Mm -hmm. not so far into the road but we were bound to find someone if not the next village and yeah we were we were lucky that someone was passing by that day and they picked us up with their truck a Ural truck big Ural truck Hmm. how did you get the bikes back then uh, basically, uh, the guy who we met on the road, he uh, uh, picked us up with, with his truck and um, uh, he, he put the bikes on his truck and uh, because also there was a little crane on his truck. So we, uh, uh, so we lifted the bike on, on his car and he drove us through this river. Wow. So he, he meets you on the highway and then he's, he's just happy to just go off road with, uh, is this Sasha? Is that his name? Sasha? Sasha. Yeah. Yeah. So, and he's happy to drive his, his rig into the, the old road of bones to rescue your motorcycles. He, he just does that. No, we did. But what I said with, okay, like this, this guy, I think already knew about us because we were the only people on this road and, from the last settlement to the next, there was a uh, communication between the people. They knew that there are some tourists on these Russian motorcycles and were coming your way. Oh. So when he saw us, he really didn't have so many questions or he wasn't really surprised. We were just probably these dumb tourists on your own motorcycles. And yeah, with a petrol canister in each hand, he probably knew what had happened. <laughs> and yeah, uh, we didn't. He didn't drive us so far into the bike, but the, the the ten minutes that it took him to drive through the river were nothing in comparison to twenty four hours of dragging the bikes through the river. Mm. Now, uh, this this guy Sasha that shows up with his truck is he doing it for profit? Does he show up to you know to get some money from the tourists and drive you out? Was that his plan? 
No, no. No, not at all. Uh, um, people there were really uh, friendly and like nobody uh, 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 asked for money, like whenever actually. So he, I think he had a little bit of fun with us. He, he and his friend, they also helped us find petrol later. And I think there as a tourist in the middle of nowhere that they can probably charge a lot for petrol. And they just gave us this petrol away as a present. I mean. Oh, wow. I, and I don't, th- yeah. I don't, I'm not saying that this is something that you normally do when you see a tourist, but what, what I said earlier also, I think it just made people laugh that we were so ridiculous and so unprepared. I somehow have the feeling that it really made their day and people were so open in return. It, yeah. How are you guys with, with people? I mean, you're, you're saying people were open I know you ran it a lot of times where you broke down and people just seem to show up and, and start asking questions. How are you guys to, how did you respond to people showing up and poking their nose in asking questions about what you're doing? It became pretty normal. I mean, the, we also had this tarp with us. We, did, we didn't decide to take a tent. So we were not closed off by the people uh, or any of our surroundings. Actually, we tried to keep it with out as much as possible without borders. So I remember one time before we went on the old road of bones, Elizabeth's shocks were broken and uh, a taxi driver came from Yakutsk, 500 kilometers away. He drove, basically he drove almost straight into the tarp or what was our living room. And yeah, he just uh, walked in and in, yeah, there was no door. And, and he gave us these shots and we tried to, we asked him, do you want maybe a coffee or a tea or something? Join us. And he said, no, no, I have to get back. And he just went back into his taxi and he drove another 500 kilometers back to Yakutsk. So we were kind of, yeah, used to it. We were camped uh, behind the petrol station in Cuba, there, and we even received mail at this place, we we received the package once that said, uh, for the Germans behind the petrol station. <laughs> and it was like completely ridiculous. Like you get used to being outside without anything, like it becomes your home. There's few places in the world a taxi driver is going to drive a thousand kilometers round trip to, to drop something off for you. It must have cost a small fortune to get him to do that. Uh, this was a present, actually, again, from uh, a friend in Yakutsk. Yeah. So it, it's amazing. You, you met so many people that were so willing to go out of their way. You think the Urals were part of that. So if you were on maybe some fancy, I don't know, BMW, Kawasaki or something like that, you, you, you wouldn't have had the same treatment from people? I think it played a role. I think it played a role that we looked a bit homeless also. <laughs> So after you got your motorcycles rescued, where did you head to then? Uh, by that point, we were running out of visa time. Also, we were actually pretty late, way overboard. And yeah, we had to we had to leave the country. And also we couldn't leave the, the bikes in Russia. Like they, they had to also leave the country. Um, so we bought plane tickets, which was another disappointment. And we shipped the bikes into containers and we headed to Canada. Why was buying the plane tickets a disappointment? 
Well, we wanted to avoid flying, actually. We want, yeah, we wanted to see how far we can get by land. So at this point, the idea of crossing the Bering Strait is, is sort of tossed aside and you're, you're going to do the, the leap with a plane. Is that what, what happened? No. Um, by this point, well, after, after buying these uh, plane tickets and uh, shipping the bikes to Canada, mm-hmm. we had no money left. Uh, but we did want to return back to Russia and continue with our plan. So yes, in Canada we stayed for six more. I eight. think it was even uh, nine months. Actually, we stayed there. Actually. Nine months. Yeah. So for nine months we were in Canada, and we tried to figure out a plan for how we would do it when we would return to Russia next year, and we tried to uh, yeah finance ourselves. So everyone got normal day jobs. And by night, we started working on a propeller construction. Wow. It's a whole new planning process here. But why Canada first? Why not just head back to Europe? I, I, I think there was a thing that we didn't want to go back home. It ah. was like, okay, the Canada was still on the which journey. And we had uh, also the um, you know, working visas for, uh, for Canada. So it's just like... and. We uh, uh, looked for a place where we can spend the winter. And as with these visas, the Canada seemed like a perfect place, actually. You stayed in Vancouver. Yes, exactly. Right. So, okay. Now, now Effie, you, you just mentioned something about a propeller system. Now, why would anyone want a propeller system for a Euro motorcycle? <laughs> yeah. We're going to take just a quick break. I have something to share with you, but stay with us. There's a lot more after the break. Some kind of bizarre stuff that may surprise you. Stay with us. How many riders have you heard say the stock seat on their bike is terrible? Some say it's like sitting on a two by four. Others say it's like sitting on a wood wood slab. It's important to keep your butt happy so that you're comfortable. But what about your feet? Stock foot pegs are the bare minimum. So you can ride the bike out of the showroom. That's about all you want to do with the stock pegs. But if you want to get serious control of your bike, you want to sort of up your ability to control your motorcycle, well, the the stock pegs just don't cut it. And you know, until you've had a great set of foot pegs on your bike, you probably can't imagine just how much difference they can make. The day that I installed my IMS products foot pegs, Uh, I was getting ready to head out on a ride. I installed them and then I went around packing and loading and I sort of forgot that I installed these new foot pegs on my bike. That is until I rode out the driveway. And the moment I stood up on those pegs, man, the connection between my foot and my foot pegs, I didn't realize what I was missing before. It's important, obviously, to have connection between your foot and your foot pegs because it is how you control your bike in particular when you stand. But even on the long stretches, you want a, a foot peg that's comfortable IMS Products makes a full line of motorcycle foot pegs um, to fit your ride. Everything from the real wide ADV1 and ADV2 on down to the Core Enduro and others that they have. They're made of cast certified stainless steel. They're warranted for life. They're made in the USA. IMSproducts.com is their website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there. You heard them on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. See and be seen. That's the motto at Cyclops Adventure Sports. Cyclops is a family-owned business. 
of motorcycle riders. They design and manufacture all kinds of lighting products for motorcycles. As a matter of fact, ATVs, bicycles, snowmobiles, all types of things. They've got stunning auxiliary lights for your bike. They have CAN bus systems uh, that, that plug into CAN bus systems, plug and play systems for BMWs and others. LED headlight replacements, which are, are beautiful, just plug and play again. And they've got things like their Evo turn signal. No, it's Evo safety turn signal inserts. It's a big, big name. But, but basically they turn your turn signals into super bright LEDs. So at the front, they turn them into to super bright LED driving lights, riding lights. And in the back, the super bright LED brake lights and turn signals. So when you step on the brakes, it's not just your rear brake light that comes on, it's the turn signals that light up as well. And then if you're turning, it'll obviously blink that light. But these are super bright. And when I'm riding along, and I've got them on my bike, when I ride along and I just tap the brakes, often it catches my, my eye because I see the reflection on the signs behind me as I tap the brakes. These things are super bright. And you know, the thing is with the motorcycle, we need to be seen. Anything that can catch the attention of a driver of another vehicle around us, either in front or behind, is super, super important. Their website is cyclopsadventuresports.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Cyclopsadventuresports.com. So, okay, now, now if you, you just mentioned something about a propeller system. Now, why would anyone want a propeller system for a Ural motorcycle? <laughs> yeah. So, okay, the propeller system was not exactly for crossing the Bering Strait, but for reaching Bering Strait. So where we left off in Magadan, uh, this is where we would return. And from there to go further up north, there's no road. There's just a river, a 1,600-kilometer river called the Kolyma River. And yeah, your only option there is either to go during the winter when the when the river freezes over, where you can drive, but we were not prepared or we did not have the appropriate gear, nor wanted to fix breakdowns in minus 50 degrees. So yes, our other option was to go by river. And yeah. And how are you going to go by river? I'm, I'm starting to see something to come together here, but the, the propeller is going to do what? Basically, we replaced the final drive with a propeller system. So yeah. the plan was to turn these bikes, these horrible, horrible breakdown bikes, into amphibious breakdown bikes. Using inflatable pontoons. Yes, we attached one pontoon to each side of the bike. And then there was a like a ladder system and a, a construction with the ladders on top of it. And then the ladders, the aluminium ladders were, were tied onto the pontoons. Final drive replaced with propeller and a, a rotor system. For steering, yeah. Which was made out of an old school desk. I remember the first one. <laughs> the rudder is made of an old school desk, sort of cut out of it? Yes. But cut into the shape. Yeah. But but I have to ask, why go through all this work? I mean, this is now, you're talking 1,600 kilometers. It's no longer a motorcycle at this point. It's more of a boat. Why go through all that work? What's what's it like? I mean, how what is the motivation for everybody at this point? I think we, because we, we really wanted to cross the Bering Strait. This was our, 
our goal and uh, uh, we already knew that uh, this uh, that, uh, that we have to get through this uh, 1600 uh, uh, kilometers on the river so but i think first we uh, we thought that we would ask like um, uh, captains because there's also like boats and traffic uh, on this river that we would uh, 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 basically hitchhike a boat but as we were in Canada, then we thought, okay, why, why don't we try to make the bikes uh, swim? Mm-hmm. And like this somehow actually was like a really cool thing. And uh, like, also yeah. it was a bit complicated to find information. It's not like you have information on when the boats are Leaving, coming yeah. and going, mm-hmm. or it's not like yeah. a cruise ship or something. There's some small barge, some barges or some small fishermen boats, but this stuff is not on the internet. And the best way to do things in Russia is to be there. But since we weren't there, we wanted to see how far we could get on our own. And uh, also this, this, uh, the uh, water uh, level can be from, uh, from year to year so low that the boats can float there. So this could also be the option that there is no traffic. Then we thought, uh, yeah, this was one of the reasons also why we uh, tried to make the bike swim. So the bikes are set up on top of the the, the flotation uh, pontoons, rather the inflatable mm-hmm. pontoons. Yeah. Your your mechanism for driving it, as you said, your final drive came out, and then you know, I think there was some sort of jack shaft set up with a long chain and a yes. um, a prop from a, an outboard motor on it that was underneath in the water. So you're revving the engine, you're driving the boat forward, you're steering steering with the school desk as a rudder. This <laughs> and this is for each one of them. You you made are, are all four of them driving? Yeah, exactly. We made uh, all uh, four uh, four bikes driving because we like wanted to go solo, right? But yeah, the, we thought we will go solo, yeah, but, the, but that didn't work out. It didn't work out, yeah, because uh, uh, our uh, system wasn't uh, strong enough to fight with the current. So, and then if uh, uh, like I think I, I I got stuck on a tree, and uh, because yeah, this uh, water is full of. Uh, um, trees and branches and like also sand um, sandbanks. So I got uh, um, stuck on a tree and uh, uh, others uh, uh, couldn't turn around because the, the um, propeller system was just too uh, too weak. And this was the point where we uh, when we uh, this was the point when we realized that we have to tie our ourselves uh, all together. Now, now we've jumped ahead here because you guys have left Canada with all of your, your new gear, your inflatable pontoons and your, and the mechanisms you've made up yourselves, um, over the winter and over that nine months in Vancouver, you're back in Russia, you're on the river now and headed, you're, you're basically looking to do the 1600 kilometers by river. And you end up now, like, as you were saying, you, you you realize that you have to tie the boats together or tie the, the, well, that's what they are. They're boats, aren't they? How how did that change things when you had to tie them together? What, What did it change for the trip for you guys? We were officially stuck with each other for the rest of the month. <laughs> I mean, it was a really crazy change because before you were you, know, you were driving as a single person. Okay, in, in my case, someone was driving me around. But still, I think for the, the people driving, the fact that you can decide to stop on the side of the road if there's a problem is a significantly different feeling than having water racing under you and and you can't just stop or 
the fact that we didn't have helmets anymore because before the helmets were like their own uh, room. Each person got his privacy whenever we were driving. The helmets came off. We had life vests now. Like it, it was like being stuck in a really tiny room with five people. That's an interesting observation about the helmet too, because we all get that with riding bikes. You have your helmet time where you're by yourself and, and that's been removed from you and you're, you're stuck on this raft. How do you survive on the raft? Like you got to eat and you got to do, well, everything on the raft. Can you talk about that? After the road of bones and like not having food for three days, we were overprepared this time. <laughs> I think we went into the, yeah, like, I don't know. I felt a bit like my grandmother who is stocking up food for <laughs> four or five months in her freezer just in case. So it was kind of like this. Uh, we stocked up on enough petrol because we also didn't know how far we will get. Like, there, yeah, there is no uh, prescription for how much petrol the Ural 650 needs on water, for instance. Mm-hmm. And we prepared with whatever we thought might be useful. Mosquito hats. Oh, I love mosquitoes. Mosquito nets. Kopo made his own paddles in case that the propeller system is not working, but trying to go against the current or to land on the side of the river because we were not sleeping on the boat. Usually we would uh, land on the one side of the river and we would set up camp. Oh, I see. So that's a bit of a break for you to get off of the raft and, and get onto land and do things. I'm curious about the, the, as far as the drive system goes, a lot of work engineering this, figuring out how it's going to work and then wondering if it's going to work when you get it all the way to Russia. Was there any thought to just using an outboard motor? Yeah, we, we had this thought, but then we thought, uh, okay, that if there's something which happens with this, with this, uh, uh motor, then we have like another thing that that we need to fix. So we need to carry even more parts with us. Uh, so this and and like I I think there was this like uh, 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 there was this motivation to try to make these bikes run. And uh, while we were in Canada, we made some test runs on the Fraser River. So like we it, it didn't like uh, the, uh, totally step to the pl- to, to the blackness sort of. Oh, I see. So you got to try it out first. You, you knew yeah, that yeah. it was going to work yeah. at least a little bit. You, you had an idea yeah, that yeah, this, yeah. the system was functioning. Yeah. A little bit. I mean, we did this test drive. The, I remember we had a breakdown on the water and a friend with a small thingy, he pulled us back. Yeah. So actually we did not have a fully functioning bike when we went on the river the first time. But yeah, at least a little bit. We There were some tests. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure. Like. We had we had some kind of planning at least. You you eventually make it the sixteen hundred kilometers on the water. Then yes, we did. Yeah, and then and what? this and then this took us one month. A month on the water. Yeah, one month on the water, and then we came to the settlement, uh, um, in the Chukotka region. Basically, and this is the the last region before the Bering Strait. And uh, yeah, this this is mostly tundra. And from there on, we uh, we started making our way to the Strait. Actually, yeah. At first, we had to retransform the bikes into being ready for land. So we basically traded off our propeller system with the local people for 
uh, getting parts to build the trailer because we still had a lot of petrol and uh, food supplies to take with us because we had another, yeah, 1,200 kilometers of nothing ahead of us. Mm -hmm. And people just help you as far as building this trailer? You found somebody's shop to work in? No, we did it on the the side of the... There was a welder and we took the, like the spare... um, spare wheels of the spike. So each, uh, on the back of each uh, sidecar, there's a spare wheel. And we took these wheels and we had also the, um, uh, what are they called? Uh, axles. And we welded them to sort of this really basic trailer. There was no shocks, nothing. And the trailer was jumping around like crazy. Yeah. But it somehow worked. We, we put uh, all our petrol and the stuff from the river on it. And yeah, we made it to the to the next city somehow. Filipino, yeah. The trailer also became a bridge for you. How did that happen? Uh, when we reached the next settlement in Filipino, because, yeah, this first trailer, it, it got us until Filipino, but it was, it needed some improvement, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, we found uh, our new friend, Maxim, who was a mechanic for the Russian army. He helped us to turn our basic trailer into a transformer trailer. A transformer trailer. Yeah. Transformer trailer. Talk about that. (laughs) Okay. So we knew that there, I mean, on our way to get to Bering Strait, we had heard that there's around 150 rivers that we would need to cross. Wow. And the idea of doing river crossings like last year on the road of bones it, it, it would never happen. We would be stuck there in the middle of winter. And also the idea of putting each bike on pontoons each time, time to, to cross one of these small rivers also didn't make so much sense time-wise. So we turned the trailer into a ramp. A ramp, yeah, and a float or a ferry. A ferry was. Yeah, so, so you could clamp the pontoons on it. And actually, if this we went like when we were on the old road of bones from uh, having to cross the river, it took us 24 hours. And now we could do it in maybe two or three hours or so. Yeah, two yeah. or three hours. Yeah. All the bikes were on the other side. Right. And and much safer too, doing it this way because the bikes aren't being dragged through the water. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. No, no drying. We didn't have to take the, the luggage uh, out of the sidecar. It was much more relaxed. These inflatable pontoons are big. How long does it take you to pump one of those up? Oh, yeah, this is quite a bit of work. If it's work, was it most? <laughs> My work was pumping pontoons. Are, are you pumping it by hand? Yeah, we had these huge pontoon pumps. pumps yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it took maybe like, what was it, half an hour or so? Maybe. No, no it's not too bad. Yeah. No, yeah. I think more annoying is trying to fold them and put them back into shape oh. to pack them. The, the pumping was not like taking things out of a box or out of the sidecar was never a problem putting them back in. <laughs> yeah. So that worked for you. And, and how far do you get? Unfortunately, not very far. We didn't make it so far. Yeah. It was after the town where we built this uh, special trailer, we made maybe three, three days further. So it was maybe like 200 something. And then we realized uh, uh, because then the, also so the, uh, mm, uh, there were mountains or like little hills. And uh, we realized that the trailer is uh, too heavy. 
So this uh, this meant for us that the clutch started burning, and basically, uh, yeah, after this 200 uh, kilo um, kilometers, the clutch blades were uh, t- uh, totally gone. So are they slipping because you're riding the clutch or are they slipping just because of too much strain? Like the clutch is engaged, yet they're still slipping. It was just too much strain, yeah. Because oh, the trailer yeah. was way too heavy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why. But, and it, like, the, 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 the problem only came when we were, we were trying to climb, uh, climb like a um, slope. Now, as far as the bearing straight goes... If you if you can't go any further, do you abandon the straight crossing? Mm-hmm. Well, I think this point was a really difficult decision to make because uh, it was it was not just about what we want to do anymore. Because we were up there in Chukotka and in, in this part of Russia, this is also a a restricted region. region. Uh, there's a lot of people that work for the military and a lot of these people helped us to get further. And uh, if you overstay your visa time in Russia or I think wherever in the world, you get you get into some serious problems. Mm-hmm. And it was not just about getting us into problem. I think also someone who works for the army there that took responsibility for us staying there and he like took us under his wing kind of we we didn't want to yeah bring other people into problems so i think by that point and after all this time of having all these people help us from germany until there it was yeah it was i think at some point you have to accept that it's not it's not just about what you want i mean it was the right thing to do to call it quits. I mean, we still had North America ahead of us. So, yeah, we had other things to expect and other things to look forward to. Mm-hmm. So we decided to, yeah, keep going. I mean, trip was not over. Did that change the adventure? You know, knowing that, you know, you sort of didn't achieve the goal that even everybody's been working towards this. And, and I, I'm assuming... You guys have all financed this. There's been a lot of money you've spent buying things, moving things, flying places, and only to to stop short of your goal after you've been through so much. Does it change the the adventure after that in some way for you? I mean, all of our adventure until then was about failing and breakdown. <laughs> so I guess it was just another big failure added to the list. And, and I think it, uh, it was also a little bit like this, that we wanted to see how far we can get with the spikes. So there was always this option like in our heads that there, there might be this, this option that we cannot cross the straight, but we uh, tried our best and like, this is how far we got. And we ignored yeah. it until mm-hmm. we couldn't ignore so it anymore. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was so difficult and, but also the, the journey on this, uh, on the river and the sort of suffering on this old road of ponds. It was actually cool. I will, uh, the moment when you were there, it was hard, but later on, it was actually the coolest thing on this journey. So, I mean, it, and for me, I, I, I didn't feel so sorry because I, I knew that the journey was really cool before. And I knew that we still had like almost like a third 
third of the route to nagu, coastal. Mm-hmm. So I, I just took it as kind of, okay, this is how far we, uh, how far we got or how close we got to the straight. And okay, this is, this was the point. Was that sort of the height of the tough stuff? Was that sort of the, you know, the, the, the top of the hill sort of thing? I would say so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would say so. Yeah. I mean, sure. Like when this moment came that we realized that uh, this uh, bearing straight need to be canceled, then of course it, it was like sad. Yeah? It was sad and it was like low and we worked so hard for it. But now then like, you know, as it, like, uh, like the, uh, two days later, I was like, okay, you know, you know, it's just a journey and like it, and we'll, the most thing that it should be fun and like, yeah, we just make our way further. And our final goal was always New York. So it, it was cool in this way, like, you know, it's just like, we'll try to have fun and look on the, uh, on the positive side. Kaupo, you, you said that, um, you were, uh, you studied sculpture. Yeah. How does this affect your sculpture or does it? Like, how does it affect you as an artist? You mean this journey? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it did. Uh, I, I was mostly working with clay like fire and uh, porcelain. And after this journey, I like, uh, I started using like, uh, motors, like little motors to make the, uh, the sculptures moving. So I, I kind of took this, um, uh, machine part, like to, to, to my art, actually, I think this, this will be the most straightforward answer mm-hmm. kind of. And also I, I started to look into different materials. I think I, I was really fixed on clay before, and now I started to uh, kind of see like other stuff also. Like, How about you, Effie? Hmm. I mean, I, yeah, I, I still can't say that I'm very knowledgeable with mechanical things, but I definitely find the objects or all these spare parts to have an interesting haptic or aesthetic to them. And I think a lot of my stuff transformed into bureaucracy. I don't know. I somehow became really interested in how absurd all the bureaucracy is when you're trying to get your visa for Kazakhstan while you're in Georgia or you enter Mongolia and they ask you which country you're from so you can get a visa and they don't know where Cyprus is. So we have to stay on the border so we can check it tomorrow morning if this country exists so we can give you a visa. Hmm. Uh, I mean, this kind of uh, absurd stuff with all this paperwork, it somehow became embedded in my work. So I create paperwork that doesn't make sense by this point. <laughs> How about for yourselves and for, and for the members of the, of the team, the, the group that went through this two and a half years doing this, was there a real transformation in personalities and, and the way people dealt with things from the start to the end? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think one of the main things that we had just finished our art studies or close enough when we started this trip and we decided to go out in the world and see what's going on and what what we can learn and what we can do and how we can put things to use. So one of the first things was to start a company before we left. Uh And this whole learning how to run this company, how to finance ourselves, how to 
organize all this stuff between five people but yeah as a as a small company i think this really this shifted also the way that we do our art now so i think we understand more how to run a business if that i, I guess it sounds a bit ridiculous this adventure and work thing combined in one but it was like this like doing tax declarations under the tarp while it's raining or hmm. yeah well, and also, I, I would think it, it shows you what you what you can really do, which is probably much more than what you thought you could before you left. Yeah, yeah. that's for sure. Yeah, and like, uh, like we you know we learned so many things which we didn't have any clue, and now now we kind of now we knew that yeah that we can learn it, and uh, actually it maybe it's not so complicated as you might. So in this way, I can I guess we came out stronger. Sort of. Mm-hmm. I think each 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 person still like uh, remains their own character. Like you know, I I wouldn't say that the characters really changed. There was definitely development. I yeah, think yeah, there's yeah. a big development in understanding how to work in a team. I I'm not sure if you get this training just from working in an office with other people in comparison to maybe starving with other people and knowing <laughs> that you have to. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, I think this is really an experience that happens once. It's, it's not like I would like to do it again. It wasn't fun, but you learn a lot of stuff about how you can work with each other. And a lot of stuff about your own, uh, a lot about your own limits. I mean, yeah. You made a film of this called 972 Breakdowns on the Landway to New York. Was the film the idea from the start? Was there the idea to film this, document it, and make a movie? Um, I think, there, well, of course, there was an idea to uh, make some kind of film, also a book, out of it. This is what we started out with saying that we would do when we did our first crowdfunding campaign in 2014. But I think there was a big learning curve also in filming. So we the how much film material we we have and how um how to say directed or how how thought of uh, a picture is or uh, a recording is even the sound recordings this really uh, developed along the way learning how to do it so there was a bit of experience there as elizabeth especially she had some experience with a camera but I think you can really see this in the film, like how, yeah, the shots improved or how, how that, how we realized that the story is being formed. So there was no script to start with. It was just whoever filmed something and we figure out how to put five people's perceptions of a story together in the end. I think the big, uh, oh, oh, I wasn't there from um, from the from the start, but I got the picture that this that there was a plan to make a book, but the film sort of the uh, film plan came uh, 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 during the traveling actually because at first we are not filming so much, and somewhere in in Georgia it was more and more and more like kind of and it uh, became into the focus yeah on um, on the road. Well, the film's out now. The book is coming when. Well, the book has already been published in German. 
It's a 400-page, two-and-a-half-kilo book, and it's a real beauty. And now we are trying to figure out how we can publish it in English. We self-published in Germany. And yes, if there is any interested publishers out there, we would be really, really happy to hear from you. We have everything translated already. Yes, maybe a good editor. Well, it sounds like a, a great adventure, and I encourage everyone to have a look at the movie, 972 Breakdowns. It's uh, it's quite a journey, and um, there's a lot more in it than just motorcycling, so I, I think it's quite interesting. Great job, everyone on the team, and Effie and Capo, thank you very much for taking the time to, to talk about your story. Thank yes, you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you very much. was Effie Zenyu and Kopo Holmberg. The website for the movie that they did is called leavinghomefunction.com. Now, leaving and home is spelled normal. Function is F-U-N-K-T-I-O-N. That's .com. Of course, that link and some photos from their adventure are available on our website, adventureriderradio.com, in the show notes for this episode. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, of course, the listener. Thank you very much for being a part of this. Hey, if you haven't done it already, we would love to get a five-star review from you wherever you find podcasts. Wherever you're listening, pop in there and let other people know what you think of the show because that helps other people find us. If you're not doing it already as well, we'd love it if you if you consider supporting the show because it is built on a model of some advertising and listener support to make the whole thing work. So drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com and click on support. And while you're there, look at our Raw show. That's the other show that we do that comes out once a month. Separate subscription you need for that one. Just subscribe anywhere you find uh, podcasts. And uh, there's a whole bunch of things on the website as far as show notes, etc. So drop by and have a look, adventureriderradio.com. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening. And I will talk to you next week. I'm Marissa Notier. And I'm Tim Notier. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Ah!